Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave, and I'm a junior. And on this show, I interview some of the unique and interesting people on the Santa Clara campus. Today's guest is Dr. Robin Nelson. She is a biological anthropologist, and her work focuses on using evolutionary theory to learn about human, social, and health outcomes. She's done research in Jamaica on child development and the role that adult figures play. Um, And in this conversation, we start with Dr. Nelson's story of finding biological anthropology as a college student at Brown and what surprising ideas she's learned from her research. Then in the second half, we really dive into some hot topics around the intersection of gene editing, biology, oppression, and systems of power. Going into this interview, I was a little worried because I don't know the first thing about biology or anthropology, much less biological anthropology, but I found that Dr. Nelson had a ton of interesting things to say that I could relate to, and I think you will as well. Um, So hopefully you can see the links between this exciting discipline and your everyday lives and the world around you. So please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Robin Nelson. So I'd love to start out by asking, what was your life like growing up and how did you kind of get interested in the subject that you're now dealing with today? So I was always interested in science topics as a child in school. I always found health pretty fascinating. Even when I was young, I I would gravitate towards stories about illness and things like that. I just thought that thinking about people's health was pretty interesting, even in high school. Um, I thought that I was going to go to med school. That Mm. was always my plan. And I think that I thought that because for a lot of kids, you are taught that there are a few clear paths towards Mm -hmm. a successful life. And if you're lucky, one of those falls within your areas of interest. And so for me, you know, if if the options were law school or med school, which is what kids in the growing up in the 80s were kind of taught, um, med school was it. I was interested in health stuff. Okay, I'm going to go become a doctor. That's what I'm going to do. I got to college um, and I started taking my pre-med classes. And I also took an anthropology class and uh, it was okay. Kept taking my pre-med classes. Um, And then I took another anthropology class. And the one that kind of changed my mind was a class called AIDS and the International Perspective. Hmm. And at that time, I did not know that there was something called medical anthropology or biological anthropology. In my mind, I was going to bring these amazing topics together. I was going to do all this pre-med stuff I was doing. And then I was going to study all this anthropology and I was going to like mash them up and make this new thing. And we had uh, someone who was actually quite famous come to our class and talk. And I didn't know that he was at the time. Paul Farmer, who studies Mm -hmm. HIV, AIDS in Haiti, and he studies TB as well. He came down and gave a guest lecture in that class. And I was like, oh, 
there's already someone who kind of does this stuff. Mm -hmm. This is a thing. We just happened to not have any full-time professors at my university who did it. So I didn't really get that. Backstory, full disclosure, my mother is also an anthropologist. Mm. And so I knew anthropology was a thing, but she was also a professor at a small um, state college. Mm. She taught a lot of classes. She wasn't able to do as much research. So my understanding of what it meant to be an anthropologist did not really um, include a lot of research. And mm. so even though I knew she was an anthropologist and I knew what she did, I didn't think about my research as being mm. um, able to fit within anthropology. Mm. And where were you growing up? Uh, I grew up in New Jersey, okay. in Southern New Jersey. Um, mm. And I went to school in at Brown in New England. Uh-huh. And I um, never thought I would leave the East Coast. And then grad school brought me to the Midwest and then jobs brought me to the West Coast. So, mm-hmm. Did you kind of find biological anthropology as this as the combination that you were looking for? Um, yes. So what I realized was that um, I loved medical anthropology, which falls more squarely within cultural anthropology. I loved it. Um, but I also wanted to do the science aspects of understanding people's health. Mm-hmm. And I realized that biological anthropologists do actual quantitative scientific um, investigations. And between undergrad and graduate school, I worked in an HIV vaccine lab in in a lab that worked on HIV vaccine at the University of Pennsylvania. And for that year, I learned a lot of techniques and kind of lab work. And And because I was coming at it from a different perspective with an anthropology background, I kind of thought, okay, if I was doing this and I wasn't looking for a vaccine for HIV and I could ask different kinds of questions, which immunological assays would I run to kind of find out other things about people's health? Mm -hmm. And so when I got into grad school, I knew that I wanted to combine kind of my understanding and background in science with my anthropological background Mm -hmm. and biological anthropology would be the place where I could do both of those things. Mm -hmm. What's maybe one research project you've done that's been really fascinating to you or that's surprised you in some way? Um, So I never thought that I would work with uh, children. Children are hard, right, for lots of different reasons. Logistically, kids are can be really hard. Um, You have to be very on top of your kind of ethical awareness in terms of the kinds of questions you ask about kids. Mm -hmm. Um, You want to be incredibly sensitive to any experiences that they're having. Um, You as an adult bring a certain amount of authority to that conversation. And so it's just challenging to work with kids. So I never thought I would work with kids, but uh, I do my research in Jamaica. And one project that I was became interested in were kids who were living in children's homes. Children's Mm -hmm. homes are kind of what we would call orphanages. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted to know what was going on with their lives, if the adults in their lives were able to create a kind of care network that approximated what it would be like to be in a family. And one of the fascinating aspects about that research, I did that research over several years, um, looking at kids who lived in children's homes and kids who lived with their family members. One of the kind of fascinating findings from that was that there were ways that some of the um, caretakers and directors of these children's homes set up systems 
that made the kids feel safe. They made the kids feel comfortable. The kids were doing well in one of the homes that I looked at. Um, and it had a lot to do with their kind of psychosocial adjustment and attachment to adults. So if the, if the caretakers were able to give the kids an adult that they could connect with. The kids mm. did well along a lot of different metrics, how they mm. were eating, how they were feeling, how open they were in talking about their emotions. Um, and, I, and I found that kind of fascinating because growing up, you know, I kind of, I kind of came of age at the moment of the fall of the Soviet Union. And so we had images of like Romanian orphanages, which were really mm. struggling. Kids uh, were really kind of neglected. There were just a lot of kids struggling. Um, along with this pop culture image of like Orphan Annie or Oliver, right? So my idea of what an orphanage was, was like these kids were really going to be in trouble. And mm. so my hypotheses in my head were very unidirectional. Like they, the kids were going to be doing worse if they were living in an orphanage. Mm. And, and to see the creative ways with very low budgets that these mm -hmm. caretakers were able to kind of figure out how to support these kids was, mm. was um, really encouraging. Hmm. So do you think that's still like a problem, kind of the children's homes phenomenon or like what, I guess, what what action did the research make you want to take? Really? Yeah, so I actually was able to, the, the funding agency that, that supported that research is called the Wenner Grand Foundation and they do specific specifically fund anthropological research. One of their funding avenues is to go back and disseminate the research that you found, which we don't always have. I mean, we should always do. You don't always have the funding to do, right? Mm -hmm. So they're making it possible for you to do just that, you know? And so I was able to kind of go back and speak with some folks in Jamaica about what we found. I was able to go back and speak to some of the directors again about how they felt like they were coping in their children's homes. Um, just to kind of talk about what they felt like their limitations were and what I found in my research about what was actually helpful. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any lessons like we can learn in the United States from the, which, the models you're looking at? Yeah, so one of the really interesting things in the US is that for the most part, we got rid of these big kinds of orphanages. Mm -hmm. We shifted towards a foster care system um, for good and for bad. The idea and the intention was kids shouldn't be kind of housed in this massive situation. They should be in kind of one-on-one -on -one family settings and that kind of thing. But we know that the foster care system has lots of challenges. Kids get moved between homes quite a bit. Um, and so I think, you know, the lesson that we could take away that I know folks who work with children in the foster care system already know is that attachment is key. Kids need to feel um, like there are adults in their lives that are reliable mm -hmm. and trustworthy and dependable and that they can always kind of turn to them. Mm -hmm. And the, the closer we can get to kind of giving kids that stability, along with other things like stability at school and stability with, you know, food and, the, and healthcare and that kind of thing, the better off they are mm -hmm. when they start to age out of the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like in the United States and maybe especially Silicon Valley, there's kind of a culture of individualism over a family-centric culture, right? Which a lot of other places in the world have a much more family-centric culture. So I don't know, do you have any thoughts on that or how those compare? And I mean, one of the interesting things about Silicon Valley is that what we have is this influx of folks at a particular moment in their careers, mm -hmm. right? Which is like really kind of early career. Um, 
and they're coming in for business. But the challenge is that folks don't stay in that window, right? Like they might come to Silicon Valley, get a great job, really enjoy living here, but eventually they're going to keep aging. And that might mean they do have a family. It might mean they don't have a family, but we have to figure out how to find a better balance between industry and and kind of growth in industry and then also supporting the families of the people who work in these industries and support these industries. So mm-hmm. if the folks who work in Silicon Valley maybe are doing okay, mm-hmm. um, what about the folks who clean the buildings in Silicon Valley? What about the folks who are teaching our children in Silicon Valley? Like mm-hmm. we've got to create an environment that is more supportive of all the different people who help our industries thrive here. Mm -hmm. And do you think that cultural difference makes it like more difficult for families in the United States or that 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 at all contributes to kind of the loneliness epidemic? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that people don't really tell you, and sometimes I tell my, my students, especially as they get closer to senior year, is that the professional career trajectory that many of us are on is going to take us away from our families. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to, but it often does. So you go somewhere else for grad school and then you get a job maybe in that area because that's where the networks are set up from your faculty who are going to help you network and get internships and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so then maybe you meet folks out there and you build a whole life there, but the life you grew up with is somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And we don't necessarily, we're not necessarily clear about how challenging that can be to be completely uprooting your life and moving around. And um, we're also not entirely honest, I think, and, and, and not in a way that's like deceitful, but we just don't focus a lot of energy on how challenging it is to raise children without that support network Mm -hmm. or to take care of elderly parents Mm -hmm. without the systems that are built in that allow us to be close to family. Mm -hmm. And so I think it does get very difficult and we end up kind of having to support people from very far away for elderly parents or Mm -hmm. siblings who might get sick or, or anyone. And we end up trying to find daycare and schools and all these other people who can help us support our families mm-hmm. where while we live far apart from folks who would probably be very interested in helping, mm-hmm. but they just live quite far away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is there, is there some balance between like being being close to your family, but also wanting to like explore and see different parts of the world? Because there's got to be benefits in, from that. Yes. Too, right? Yes. I mean, one of the things I think is fascinating yeah. is that like me at my age now I'm not quite the same person that I was at 22 when I was like, I'm going to go to grad school in anthropology and I'm going to like travel the world. Mm -hmm. Like initially, truthfully, I have two children. I wasn't going to have kids. I have my backpack and I was like, I'm going to see the world. And I think that there is great value in getting outside of your home environment if you can. Mm -hmm. And that might not mean traveling the world. That might mean like going to communities near your home that you've never kind of spent any time in, right? But getting outside of your comfort zone and really learning something new about other folks and allowing that to kind of challenge our own perceptions of ourselves and how we think about other people. I think it's incredibly valuable. I also think that there's a moment when 
you're like, okay, that was great. You know, now I probably would really appreciate being able to come home to the same place every single day Mm -hmm. and have a reliable set of friends and family Mm -hmm. that support me. And I'm going to build a life in that way. Mm -hmm. And not everybody has the opportunity to kind of pick up and go and travel and then settle back down later. But I think there are ways to kind of really say to ourselves, what don't I know about my community and what do I need to know in order to better understand how we are all kind of connected and working Mm. together? Hmm. Yeah. I saw you had taught a class called the biology of poverty. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm just so curious that title, you don't think of those two words as going together. Mm -hmm. So yeah. What is that that class? So that class, I, I, kind of love teaching that class i will also say it is it is not um the cheeriest topic Mm -hmm. as you might imagine so what that class is about is about one how we make real differences between communities so we kind of start the conversation talking about how race is actually not a biological concept but how meaning that it's not scientifically valid um but how historically we have kind of made it real via segregation and different policies and slavery, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And then, so we talk a little bit about that, like how biology becomes a way of kind of understanding difference between people. Mm. And then that creates its own caste system, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. And we also talk about in that class how poverty itself becomes embodied. So who is more likely to live in areas where there are environmental toxins? Folks who are poor. What communities are more likely to experience poor sleep and all the negative effects of poor sleep? Mm -hmm. Noise pollution, uh, folks who are poor, right? Mm -hmm. So we talk about all these different factors that kind of influence your biology Mm -hmm. because of your class situatedness. Mm -hmm. We talk about pregnancy, we talk about childbirth. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of in the end, this way of kind of understanding how biology and poverty feed into each other like Mm -hmm. a loop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that can be a really divisive sort of issue, right? Because mm-hmm. if you, for example, are talking about biological differences between like men and women, yeah. and that that's kind of led to the situation we are now. And, you know, now, now there's a bigger movement to have like equal representation and at least in like businesses. Right. Yeah. But like historically, that's definitely been like a means of oppression and biology has been really linked to that. So mm-hmm. I don't know, like, how do you navigate that? debate between like equality and like scientific differences between people that's a really really good question so one of the things that we talk about quite a lot in this class and i talk about a lot in like other in my research and things like that is how much difference is actually meaningful Mm -hmm. and 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 things we need to know right and how much difference is actually not, or what differences are actually not so meaningful, but have been inscribed with a lot of social meaning or cultural meaning, right? And so we often say things like, men are taller than women, men are stronger than women, right? And most people would assume that those are well accepted kind of biological facts about men and women. Mm -hmm. 
When you actually kind of look at the science, these are overlapping normal curves, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you look at kind of men and women and how different they are in height, like around the world, they overlap quite a bit, right? Mm -hmm. So at the far extremes, you have very short women like me, mm -hmm. right? And you have very, very tall men like a, like a LeBron James, mm -hmm. right? Or a professional basketball player. Mm -hmm. But everybody else in the middle, there's actually quite a lot of overlap. And so when we start kind of talking about, okay, men and women are different, how do we navigate this? We really try to kind of get down to the the bare bones of what differences are, are kind of meaningful and useful for us to think about mm -hmm. and which ones have been given a lot of like value because mm -hmm. of kind of patriarchal practices, really. Mm -hmm. um, I also try to kind of get away from thinking about binaries. Like we talk about um, kind of intersex communities, like folks don't typically think, oh, well, intersex communities, that's just a small little bit of the population, right? And I heard a researcher say at a conference once, actually the intersex population around the world is the same percentage of people who have red hair. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't necessarily think, you know, we don't think red hair, we think of it as kind of rare, but not that rare, mm -hmm. right? And so I try to point that out to my students that these kind of binaries that we set mm -hmm. are actually far more complicated than mm -hmm. we think. And instead, what's going on, rather than this being a, some hard and fast biological truths often, are a lot of kind of social conventions and cultural mm -hmm. shortcuts that we make mm -hmm. to group people. Yeah, yeah. To get kind of science fiction for a moment, yeah. I know there's been some, um, well, there's obviously been advances in like genetic editing, right? And yeah. there was in the past year, um, something that went on in China that was mm -hmm. kind of like criticized by the international community, right? But in the, in a potential future where we can, you know, prevent certain, uh, genetic diseases and that's maybe the positive side, then maybe the negative side is, if you're a millionaire, your kids can literally be smarter than someone else's kids or have certain combinations of genes that make them really healthy, right? Like, do you, I don't know, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's very, <laughs> very worrying, right? Because we have had a long history of kind of eugenics policies without mm -hmm. even gene editing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we kind of had ways of making sure some people had kids and other people didn't have kids long before we were able to kind of go in and tweak genes. And so um, one of the things that I teach in, in a culture and ideas class called Measuring Humans is I teach a little bit about, the, about eugenics and about how we tend to think, I always ask the students, you know, what's the most famous eugenics, you know, situation that you know of? And they always say the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And I say, sure. And then I explained to them that the ideas about eugenics and improvement through kind of uh, selective procreation mm -hmm. came from the United States to Hitler rather than Hitler mm -hmm. kind of coming up with that on his own. Mm -hmm. And so the CRISPR um, situation is, is worrying. And part of the reason why a lot of the scientists kind of really got upset when they realized that the scientists in China had done this was because we haven't worked through ethically how we manage mm. the capacity 
to eliminate certain traits, eliminate certain diseases. I mean, mm-hmm. optimistically, we think, okay, it's just going to be the worst things. You know, it's mm-hmm. just going to be the worst diseases that that folks will kind of get rid of before their kids are born. But we know that's never the way it works, mm-hmm. right? Like these, science doesn't happen in a vacuum. Science happens within very specific cultural and social milieus, and mm-hmm. so. When we start thinking about gene editing, we're we're baking into it all the other biases that mm-hmm. we bring into our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe the the counter argument is you mentioned self improvement, right? So, um, the like I feel like the differences between maybe a child who had two really supportive parents and is like constantly reading to them, and they're in all the best schools, and then they're picked for the all star team, and just kind of leading that life of of privilege perhaps ends up in like a totally different place than someone with a more dysfunctional family situation. Right. So, and and then there is kind of that culture of self-improvement too, especially in Silicon Valley. Right. Mm -hmm. So obviously the, I don't know, the biological side is like a different level to it, but like these are differences between people nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the challenge becomes when we go from, um, individual intention right Mm -hmm. like i got up this morning and and ran and i felt real good about that right you know like i am Uh doing my own like self-improvement stuff but the individual intention stuff often gets baked into structural inequalities Mm -hmm. right and so when we move away from thinking about it as like I would like, in the the schools is a really good example right um i would like my kid to go to the best schools all parents want their kids to go to the best schools, right? Like we know that. We also know that property taxes support schools. In a lot of states, it's local property taxes mm-hmm. that support schools. So you got a whole bunch of parents who want their kids to have the best experience. But what you have is kind of inequity with regards to wealth and property taxes, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to have some parents who say, look, it's not my fault. We have money. We live in the nice neighborhood. Our kid goes to the nice school. You need to improve yourself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And get your kid into a good school. Sorry, your school isn't so good, mm-hmm. right? But if their school isn't so good and we don't have some kind of cross investment here, how is their kid then going to improve themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, it goes from kind of individual ideas about um, education to a structural system that is set up so that these school districts will never be equal to one another, mm-hmm. right? So I think sometimes when people say, well, hey, I just want to improve my life and my kids. Mm-hmm. I say, okay, at what cost? Mm-hmm. And at what cost to whom? Because there is a cost. Mm-hmm. Hmm, yeah. I, I'd love to ask a couple shorter questions. Your sure. answers don't necessarily have to be short. But if you were, if you were teaching a a class to first-year students, what uh, what piece of advice would you want mm. to give them? I would tell first-year students to stay true to themselves. Mm-hmm. It's a first year at college is a fantastic time of figuring out who you are, mm-hmm. and 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 in some ways getting to rediscover yourself or redefine yourself. You don't have to be the same person you were in high school anymore. You can be somebody new. That being said, you have a core of who you are and you make decisions based on what you know are the best decisions for you. Don't get swept up into things that maybe you don't feel so good about at the Mm -hmm. end of the day, but you're trying to make friends and you're trying to figure out where you fit in. Mm -hmm. Take a step back. It's college. 
there's always going to be a group of friends that you can find that will support the things that you're interested in and will support you. So stay true to yourself. The second thing I would say is um, be, be thoughtful about your studies and, and, and make sure you give yourself enough time for your work. Mm-hmm. College is such a social moment, you know, that it can be almost like the academics are um, running parallel to kind of the development of your social life, not mm-hmm. that the academics come first for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, you know, look at your schedule, keep a schedule, be fastidious. It's not high school. Your professors are not babysitting you. You have to be on top of your work and you need to be clear about how much time it takes to get everything done well. Mm-hmm. So just be thoughtful about your studies. Mm-hmm. Do you have any favorite place that you've traveled? Mm, that's a great question. Um, yes, I think. Um, so two places. I spent a summer in Namibia. In Southern Africa, when I was an undergrad, I did some uh, research there. That was amazing. Just very, very interesting ecologically, very interesting culturally, and then historically, because Namibia was under apartheid with South Africa. So it has like a very kind of interesting and com- interesting and complicated kind of history. And I was there soon after apartheid, so it ended. So it was a fascinating mm-hmm. moment, and also Capri. Hmm. Um, you're Italy. So just, yeah. yeah, I just, those two places in my mind, I think what I'm remembering the most about them was how they looked and what it felt like to be there. Mm-hmm. Though, and, and maybe because those two experiences, when I was in Capri, that was my first time ever traveling to Europe. And when I was in Namibia, that was my first time ever traveling to Africa. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of changed my world to mm-hmm. see these places that were so different from where I was growing up mm-hmm. on the East Coast of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you could send a message to every person in the United States, mm-hmm. what would you want to say? Mm. Truthfully, I would say that uh, we need to be honest with ourselves about the, the oppression that other people experience that you know homophobia and transphobia are real racism is real classism is real like we need to be a little more honest about these things because they are impacting our politics and our lack of empathy is really scary Mm-hmm. And finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? Oh. So I have two ideal Saturdays. Okay. <laughs> okay. My first ideal Saturday is um, my, my, I have a son who's six and a half. Mm-hmm. He often plays sports. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I would wake up, I would go run, I would come back, drink an Americano. We'd go out to one of his games, be out in the sun, hanging out with the other parents leave the game, go to the farmer's market, lunch, Mm. and a very relaxing afternoon. That's one Saturday. The other Saturday, let's imagine that my children are with their grandparents in Mm. San Francisco. (laughs) And it's just me and my husband wake up, go running, drink coffee, listen to public radio probably, or podcast, Uh and truthfully, like, relax, do work, maybe watch a Warriors game in the evening. Uh Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing this interview. Thank you so much. This was great. 
Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can go to VoicesOfSantaClara.com to read a partial transcript of this episode, follow on Twitter at VoicesOfSCU, or leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. I'll see you next time.